There's something really curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. Nominal, nominal, Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. That only means one thing, I've got to turn this fader up and see who is on the other end. Hello? Who is this? Do I know you? Get off my line. <laughs> How you doing? Eh, half the year's over and it's just like, where did it go? What's going on? Kids are out of school, which <laughs> I'm glad I work 9 to 5 then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got another month before the kids in the UK break up for the summer. Yeah, but when do they go back? Uh, September. That's what I'm used to. I'm used to they get off at the beginning of June, and then they don't go back until the day after Labor Day, which is the first Tuesday in September, I believe. Labor Day is considered the unofficial end of summer here. But the school district we're in now, they start them like a week and a half before Labor Day, and it blows my mind. It's like, no, why are you starting school at the end of August? Stop that. Let it be till the end, of, you know, let it be till Labor Day. I guess it beats those school districts that have school all year round. Back home, we used to have this thing called, well, we used to, it still goes on, the Buckinghamshire County Show. Was it the county show? Uh, well, it's basically just showing the best of the, of the county, really. Uh, oh, all right. It, it used to be an agricultural thing, but it's kind of evolved a bit. <laughs> over the years and uh, it's still got you know, a few bits in there you know um, farmers showing off the best of their livestock and that kind of thing but there's lots of other things as well uh, big fairground stuff and all that it's like a, like what we would call a state fair over here like a state fair yeah kind of and um, obviously the kids want to go to it so you'd always find that the first week that the kids go back to school that Thursday half of the kids are not actually in school <laughs> <laughs> so now they've changed the dates of when the kids go back to school so that the county show is finished before they go back. Well, it's the same thing here. There are only a couple of major cities. It's it's like you've got Scranton and Allentown, you know, the Billy Joel song, Philadelphia on the eastern side, then you got Harrisburg and a couple of others scattered along the south, then you got Pittsburgh and Erie off to the west. That's pretty much it. We're a big state, too. The rest is forest and farmland, so deer hunting is huge here. You know, there are some counties where there are more deer than people, and it got to a point where deer season, I think, starts like the, I think it's like the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, but it got to the point where so many kids were being taken out of school to go hunting with their dad or their mom or whoever goes hunting that they finally said, all right, forget it. We're, that's going to be a... a school day off we're done <laughs> you're gonna take the kids out anyway fine just take the day so the first day of deer season is, is a state holiday yeah it's a it's a big deal isn't it it's huge over here so so what's been going on with you uh well i got something to go along with my saturn five yes i did yeah, see yeah i did <laughs> i got the uh NASA Apollo 11 Lunar Lander. It was only 99 bucks, mm-hmm. which I thought was wow. Of course, what did I? I'm trying to remember what I paid for the Saturn V. 
It was about 105, I think, something like that, I think. Really, was it? Let me see if they still have it on their site. I'd imagine they would have made enough of a batch of them for the upcoming. Still available for 120 bucks. Yeah, but you know what? Lego had... They've done some really stupid things in the past where it's like they, they would have a bunch of things that were in high demand, but they'd put it at limited quantity. And then next thing you know, they're laying people off because there's not enough sales. And it's like, uh, hello, someone's not making a connection here? <laughs> high demand item people are willing to pay for, but then you limit the quantity and then you let people go. What? Hello. So maybe they learned their lesson. Yeah, probably. I mean, as I say, the Lunar Lander, the price of it in the UK, I think it's about 85 quid, something like yeah. that, uh, which is not bad for Lego. No, it's not. Well, it's not branded. If it was Star well, Wars true. or something like yeah. that, oh, twice the price. At least. Yeah. How many, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. How many pieces is this? 1,087. Oh, now, come on. At least the Saturn V was 1969. Yeah. <laughs> that was brilliant. Yeah, that was funny. Wow, so that's still available. Hmm, interesting. Not for me, not for me. One is enough. <laughs> no, my, my youngest daughter was like super, oh my God, that is so cool. I want one. And then when she found out that I got the Lunar Land, she's like, can I help put it together? So she, she's my little astronaut. My uh, friend and colleague, Ian Hines from uh, Dead Universe Comics, he bought the carbon freezing chamber from Star Wars. <laughs> But you only get half of it, because it's it's almost like a facade, so you only get to see half of it anyway. But he wanted the whole thing, so we bought two of them. And um, he gave one to his son to put together, and he put one together to see who would put it together the quickest. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously his son put it together quicker than he did, and then they joined the two together to make the complete thing. Wait, how... Wait... What do you mean to make the complete? All right, all right. I'm looking at the product now. I see what you mean. Okay. Make it one big circle instead of just a half a circle. Yeah. Got it. Okay. That is a retired product. Well, thank you for telling me that. <laughs> but it was the fact I thought, yeah, let's trust Ian to get two of them to make it look complete and then <laughs> make it a challenge with your son to see who can make it the quickest. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, hell, you can pretty much also, if you want to, and if you have the patience, pretty much every Lego brick is available for download for 3D printing. Oh, yeah. And then if you go to Lego stores anyway, you can buy pretty much most bricks. Yeah. I think. <laughs> Don't know that you want to pay the price for them, but if you really need to. How do you stand on Lego? Is it Lego for you, or is it Legos for you? <laughs> You mean for the bricks themselves? Yeah, yeah. I we usually say Legos, although I know technically it's Lego bricks. Lego is the brand name; it's not the item. I, I notice it's a trend in in America to call them Legos. <laughs> yeah, well, you know why, why put the extra word in there if you don't need to? But uh, we just call them bricks. <laughs> I know. There's lots of other expletives you call them if you tread on it or kneel on them. But, well, that's um, different. <laughs> this is a family-friendly well, podcast. We're not going to elaborate. I don't think we need to for a parent, though. <laughs> that is one of the most painful things ever. <laughs> I just saw an article from one of those one of those parody websites. It might have even been The Onion. That Lego has come out with a new one that will kill you instantly when you step on it. 
There's been some brilliant things over um, uh, April Fool's Day through Lego. There's been a vacuum cleaner that actually separates the different bricks <laughs> in each little chambers. Um, special slipper sock things that stop you from feeling the pain of Lego when you tread on them. Um, all kinds of stuff. I could see a market, though, for something that would sweep them up and then separate them. Mm. Maybe not even by color, but just in general design. Man, you, you get something good like a, I don't know, get a decent all-in-one computer board, like a, maybe not a Raspberry Pi that might be too slow, but something along those lines with an optical scanner. Yeah. Hook that up to an Arduino and say, okay, this part coming goes into this bin. This part looks like a, you know, six by one that goes into this one. This one looks like a three by two that goes into this one. I could see a market for that. It's a, it's a bit like those money boxes, isn't it? Yeah. The, the ones you just put the coins in, it automatically sorts them into the different chains. Yeah. I could see a market for that. Save a lot of time. Yeah, I would. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, somebody get on this. Do this. Yes, come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Shall we get on to the main part of the show? Oh, sure. Okay, then. So we'll take a short break. Come right back and uh, let's get all spacey. Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks, thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and Space Launch System rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, the journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the red planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. Good morning. It's T minus 45 minutes until the final countdown commences. In less than one hour, if all goes according to plan, the three members of the Apollo 11 crew will blast off in their- My father's name was Edwin Eugene Aldrin. Has dreamt of mankind's greatest adventure. I became Buzz. Destination, the moon. We look back at the Earth and watch it get smaller. Oh, it was beautiful. Apollo 11, this is Houston. I've got the morning news here, if you're interested, over. Go ahead, Houston. Uh, an Irishman has won the World Porridge Eating Championship by consuming 23 bowls of instant oatmeal. I'd like to enter Aldrin in the oatmeal eating contest next time. He's on his 19th bowl. <laughs> Roger. 
human nature and curiosity is to explore the world around us. And the world around us includes way beyond. Houston, get a go for landing, over. I did it, go for landing. Roger, 1202, we copy it. We're go, same type, we're go. Okay, engine stop. We copy it down, Eagle. The next generation of explorers should not ever give up. This is TGP Nominal. So welcome back to TGP Nominal. So we're going to talk space and everything that goes along with it. Uh, there's a few news stories that we've got. Some of them are a bit, uh, what's the phrase I want to use, sort of more time-specific than others. But uh, it's a nice little one to start off with. An amateur space photographer, Andrew McCarthy, not that Andrew McCarthy, <laughs> or space nerd, as he calls himself on Instagram, <laughs> has a passion for astronomy, thanks to his dad introducing him to the moon through his telescope when he was a kid. Now, this guy is based in uh, San Clemente, and uh, he's um, a software worker and has taken thousands and thousands of photographs, and one in particular that he shared on social media, I think he, he put it on Reddit, has gained over 74,000 upvotes. <laughs> His 81-megapixel shot came about after an evening's work on May the 7th as part of his current project to take pictures of the moon every day for one month. He said, I like to take as many photos as possible using two cameras and a telescope patched to a tracking mouse that compensates for the rotation of the Earth. That gives me a nice, clear, crisp image. His post also includes the ability for users to zoom in and see individual craters. Now, that's pretty cool. It was thanks to a free telescope Andrew found on Craigslist uh, a couple of years ago that his passion was reignited and he started to share his images on social media. I like to post in a variety of communities to introduce new people to this hobby he said what I like might be different to what other people like but I particularly like the deep space stuff one image in particular was posted on February the 25th is one of his most popular and it was even picked up by the media in Russia and India and so far it has gained 23,000 likes on Instagram Andrew says I take time to reply for those who want more information about how to get started he now has a massive queue of people in his inbox of people who want to talk to him about his creations. But how does the average person improve their pictures of the moon and planets? Andrew admits that photos taken by a mobile phone aren't so good. My advice is to get into forums and communities and pick up tips from there. Obviously, we like to big up our colleagues at UK Astronomy. Their Facebook group is really good. So if you go to UK Astronomy on Facebook and um, if you have any questions to ask about astronomy, there is always somebody there that can help you out. There's a massive, great big group of uh, astrophotographers there. Um, I think they've got nearly 5,000 members now in the group. Mm. So that's pretty cool. Of course, there have been many attempts to get great photographs of the moon and beyond, says uh, Andrew, but practice makes perfect. Look up uh, <laughs> space nerd Andrew McCarthy on uh, Instagram and you'll be able to see some of these amazing images that he's got there. 
I'm looking at the compressed version, and holy cow, that is an amazing photo. Yeah, it's pretty cool. There's no other word for it. That is amazing. 50,000 images to make that thing. Wow. It is a very impressive image. I'm just looking at the gear that he was using for it, because he has that listed. An Orion XT-10, a Skywatcher EQ6R Pro. Well, that's the mount. Two different kinds of color cameras. It's interesting. Wow, that's that's nice. That is really, really nice. And it goes to prove that you don't need to be a professional to come up no. with this kind of stuff. Yep, that, that's cool. That is very nice. <laughs> Well, did you know that we're going to be... Well, we being uh, collectively... NASA is going to be sending a helicopter to Mars? I haven't heard that one, no. Neither did I. I was kind of surprised to hear that. But in 2021, they're going to be sending a small autonomous helicopter to test the viability of heavier-than-air vehicles on Mars. Apparently, back in January 2019, the team who's doing this operated it in a simulated Martian environment. Then it got moved to Lockheed Martin in Denver for compatibility testing with the Mars helicopter delivery system. Obviously, that's what they're calling it. It's really light. It's only four pounds or, well, less than two kilograms. And it's going to be held against the belly of the Mars 2020 rover during launch and the crews up there. So it's not going to carry any instruments at all. It's going to be deployed from the rover after landing. That's what it says, yeah, before deploying it onto the surface of Mars after landing. So it's going to get deployed, and they're going to use it, because it's so light, to confirm that they can actually have some kind of powered flight that's capable of of doing that in the Martian atmosphere, which is obviously much thinner than ours. One of the things that uh, the Martian, with Matt Damon, one of the things that they had to kind of fudge was that a windstorm on Mars doesn't really have enough density to do anything. So they, they had to fake that part for the book and for the movie to give it some kind of plot to it. But the atmosphere is so thin, so they decided to go for this really lightweight, autonomous helicopter craft to see if it can fly in the Martian atmosphere. Because it's only 1% of the density of Earth's. Well, not just to see if it can fly, but if it can also be properly controlled from Earth. They did say it is going to carry a camera, but really... That's about all that it can do, because it's just an experiment right now. And it's it looks like this little cute, like a cube set with some propellers on top. There's really not much to it. But obviously, if they can prove, hey, this works, and you know, being solar-powered and so forth, if they can do that, then they can send up better helicopters, or at least helicopters that can carry better equipment, to have those things much more rapidly go along the Martian surface than, you know, a rover could. But it can also go into craters. It can act for scouts for whenever we get human crews up there. If we get human crews up there. Got a story on that one later that's interesting. Our ability to go to Mars might not be as possible as people think it is. Um, So yeah, and in Denver, they, they got this all set up to make sure that the electrical connections worked and that it could be hooked up with the rover vehicle. And, uh, of course, the extreme temperature tests that they always do. So it then returned to JPL in May for further testing and so forth. A new solar panel added to power the helicopter. Rotor blades were spun up. So right now it's about 1,500 individual pieces. They're making sure that everything works fine. And 
as long as it's ready to go, it's going to launch on the uh, the ULA Atlas V. That's going to send up the 2020 rover. It's going to land February 18th, 2021. Yeah, and according to this, the rover will be the first spacecraft in the history of planetary exploration with the ability to accurately retarget its point of touchdown during the landing sequence. And then we're going to get a, a little helicopter flying up there, hopefully. Yeah, as long as it's not supplied by Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, here's your Amazon Prime Martian probe delivery. (laughs) (laughs) Talking of Mars, NASA plans to take a a set of new steps to try and resolve a problem with one of the key instruments on the Mars InSight lander. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory said that they will use the lander's robotic arm, which was designed to place instruments onto the Martian surface, to lift up to the support structure for the Heat Flow and Physics Properties Package, or HP3, as part of efforts to troubleshoot the instrument. So basically they're going to use this arm to try and lift it up, jiggle it around a bit and see if that will help. Because what happened, I don't know if you know that they had this um, instrument that they called the Mole, which was supposed to go quite deep into the ground mm-hmm. yep. and it went to about something like 30 centimeters and then got stuck uh. so <laughs> and it's been stuck there for the last three months the project scientists and engineers now believe that the mole is stuck because of the lack of friction within the surrounding regolith which means the mole simply bounces in place and then it attempts to hammer deeper into the surface and just keeps bouncing back off again uh, which the kind of thing happens with a hammer drill sometimes when you're using those so they've come up with this idea which is probably a very simple technique if it works of course so yeah they're just going to try and lift it up jiggle it around a bit and see if it will go in further <laughs> well makes sense well they've, they've tried it out as an experiment on Earth, because they've got a reproduction of the lander um, on some kind of Mars yard site somewhere, and um, it seemed to work. So it should work, but as you say, the atmosphere and everything is very different there mm-hmm. than it would be in just a, a sand pit <laughs> somewhere in uh, California. But um, just got to wait and see. I am curious as to what would have caused it to not go anymore but oh well okay so one thing that we've discussed here multiple times because it's a uh, it's a source of fascination even if it turns out to be totally bogus is the em drive it hasn't left yet it's still in the news it's that controversial drive that is supposed to convert electricity into microwaves and then channeling those microwaves through a conical chamber is supposed to exert a force against the walls and produce thrust which apparently is in violation of the conservation of momentum. It's been a hot topic, and I know that you and I have, we were taking a little bit of back the way that the scientific community was like, nope, nope, forget it, can't happen, no. It's like, wait, if there's a chance, why not at least try it? You know, it's like, nope, no, no, violates all the laws of physics. Well, the laws of physics as we know them. Just, exactly. Just because we know them doesn't mean these are the only laws of physics in existence. It's just the you know, ones we've been able to figure out. And uh, so NASA even got involved with it, and they verified, yeah, we are seeing something too, and we think we've accounted for all of the things that would otherwise come up with a, a false positive. But the team of uh, physicists at Germany's, oh boy, I'll just call it Dresden Technical University. I don't think I don't even want to go with the German pronunciation because I will botch it so badly. 
they set out to create a device that would properly conduct the experiments to determine if the thrust is real. Right now, the biggest theory that it not being real is that the thrust is simply caused by the heat that's being generated from the, the chamber itself. Not that it's actual thrust, but it's heat. So what they're trying to do is create an instrument that is so sensitive and immune to interference that it would put an end to the debate once and for all. They presented their second set of experimental measurements to the International Astronautical Congress. The results are going to be published in August. The proponents are saying, well, they're trying to make it seem like this is some kind of quantum mechanics that don't really apply to Newtonian physics, saying that uh, from the theory point of view, no one takes this seriously. Uh, No clue where this thrust is coming from, but what they're trying to do is they think they've come up with something that will account for what the critics are saying is causing all of this. That's really what it comes down to. So, this researchers, in order to really determine if it's thrust, the researchers must be able to shield this thing from interference caused by the magnetic poles, seismic vibrations from the environment, and the big one, the thermal expansion of the EM drive due to the heating from the microwaves, since that's obviously the big culprit. So, they're trying to address an issue called thermal drift, uh, which that comes down to the cone heating up and expanding, which shifts the center of gravity just enough to cause a torsion balance to register force that can be mistaken as thrust. <laughs> the physics of this are so beyond us. I, although I get what they're saying here. It still comes down to they're trying to compensate for the thrust chamber getting heated up. Uh-huh. So during the course of 55 experiments, they registered an average of three to four micronewtons of force, which is similar to what the NASA team found as well. These forces did not appear to pass the thermal drift test. Again, that leads to thermal expansion. So what they're trying to do is develop two additional types of thrust balances, including a superconducting balance that will help to eliminate the false positives from thermal drift. So if they detect a force from the EM drive with those balances, then there is a high probability that it is actually thrust. But if no force is registered, then that means that likely all of the previous tests were false positives. So what they're hoping to do is have a final verdict by the end of the year. That doesn't necessarily mean that all of this has been for waste, if that's the case, because there are other forms of propellantless propulsion that people are designing and trying out. So if anyone ever does come up with a new form of weak propulsion that doesn't use any kind of propellant, well, then then the, you know, these hypersensitive thrust balances that they're developing for this test could be used for the next device to see if that works. So, you know, that's what this is all about. Even if this whole thing turns out to be completely fake, what gets learned and developed from this could help with future tests. Definitely. I mean, that's what science is all about anyway, isn't it? It's about breaking boundaries. I mean, just because it's kind of breaking a a set of laws, if it's been found that these new laws, as it were, work, then what's the problem? So, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Obviously, like I said, the science behind that and the actual mathematics behind it are way above our heads. But just the fact that they're trying... Why not? But don't get me wrong. I understand. Uh, What's that phrase? Um, Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Mm -hmm. But the fact that NASA even was looking at it and they found something. I think there was probably something like nine or ten different facilities that were 
looking at this and found similar results. Right. So you can't say it's just a, a one-off thing. No, but it comes down to, of well, what caused it? Mm. Because all of them came up with similar results. Well, they could all be the caused by the same thing. Yeah. So hopefully we'll have results by the end of the year, and, and then the issue can be put to rest. That would be very interesting to see what they come up with. <laughs> When single mum India Jackson was offered a truly out-of-this-world internship with NASA, she was delighted, as you can probably guess. Mm -hmm. There was just one problem. India would have to fund her and her daughter's travel and living expenses for the opportunity to work at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston for 10 weeks. The 32-year-old physics PhD student at Atlanta's Georgia State University was worried that she wouldn't be able to afford it. The cost of the flights, accommodation, car rental alone would run into thousands. I was ecstatic about being given the opportunity, but I knew it was going to be very expensive. It wasn't just the cost of living in Houston, I had to take my daughter into consideration. I also have a house here in Atlanta and I would have to continue paying rent on it. That's when India's cousin, Dasha Fuller, come up with the idea of a GoFundMe page. This is a lifelong dream of hers and a long time coming and I'm very proud of her. Unfortunately, she is unable to attend. India is a single mother and a struggling graduate student, so money is tight. Dasha originally posted this on the page. You must have money in order to get ahead in this country, and she's worked hard to get this opportunity, and I don't want to see all of her lifelong work gone to waste due to financial hardship. The heartfelt plea caught the attention of generous donors, and within 24 hours, the GoFundMe page had reached more than $8,000, or £6,250, which was a target. It was overwhelming. No words can describe it, India said. Someone donated $1,000 in one hit, and another one just $1. But it doesn't matter how much. People believed in me. They had my best interest at heart. India's passion for astronomy began in the ninth grade when she entered a science program and visited the Fernbank Science Centre in Atlanta, but it was mathematics that she was more gifted in. After completing her bachelor's degree in the subject, she began teaching it in schools and colleges. When it came time for India to do her PhD, the Doctor Who fan said she chose physics and astronomy, subjects that she was passionate about learning further. Now she hopes that her internship will lead to a fellowship at NASA so that she continued the legacy of African-American women working at the agency, which goes back to the 1940s, which is really cool, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's cool. They even had the uh, integrity to shut it down once they reached their goal. You know, they could have easily just taken more money that people wanted to give. Yeah. But they didn't. They shut it down, saying, you know, we got what we want. Thank you for the support, which that's also very cool. Helping someone who's got that the, the gift of being able to do this kind of stuff, it can't be wasted. It needs to be nurtured. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. And I love seeing stories like this when somebody is going through hardship and, and they manage to get to that point that they can really make a difference. Yeah. It does help to restore your faith in humanity. With all the other crap that goes on in this world, that is a very cool story. I like that one. Something that we've been following closely, the James Webb. It's uh, it's had its moments. <laughs> oh, yeah. Of good and bad. Uh, not the least of which is, is surviving a hurricane. But after numerous delays, NASA has announced 
that the much-anticipated James Webb Space Telescope would be ready for launch by 2021. So they recently indicated that it's ready to go. It completed its final vacuum test. Obviously, this is one of those things that has to go through a ton of testing because once it's up there, you're not going back to it. Uh, It completed its thermal vacuum testing in Houston, which course the big hurricane that hit through there so the bus which is responsible for flying it into space and the sun shield have to be integrated but otherwise all of the tests they've been done and it's been cleared for operations in space so the next step will be to integrate that spacecraft element with the instrument module to form the full assembly but assuming that there are no further delays it'll be ready to launch from french guyana in uh, under two years Yeah, and as you say, we've been following this quite closely, and we've had quite a connection with it, thanks to uh, Eric Smith, who's Mm -hmm. the uh, program director, who actually took time out to talk with us, didn't he? Yeah, he did. That was a great interview. That was, wasn't it? It was brilliant. So, um, yeah, I'll have to put a link in the show notes so that people can listen to that again if they haven't already heard our uh, chat with Eric Smith. has launched a rocket from a mobile platform at sea for the first time, sending five commercial satellites and two others containing experimental technology into space. The Long March 2 rocket blasted off from the launch pad on board a commercial ship in the Yellow Sea off the coast of the Shandong province. China is officially the third country after the US and Russia to master sea launch technology. Now, we were kind of discussing this <laughs> just now off of air. We were like, well, hang on a minute. What about Copenhagen suborbitals, yeah. which absolutely amazing guys, but they haven't actually got into space from one of their launches, but I still include them because the technology that they're using, considering they are DIY rocketeers. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> See, if you could apply this to video cameras and so forth, they'd be in the prosumer category, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. But uh, the the actual equipment that they use, the support vessels that they've got, yeah. and the actual support through, as you say, video cameras, and, and the shots that they were actually showing were better than some of the stuff that NASA actually provides. Right. Well, I don't, I, mean, I don't even mean from that perspective, but just they're not amateurs, but they're not professionals. No. So that's kind of where you'd have to put them in the middle there. They're prosumer rocketries, rocketry systems, put it that way, maybe. Just a hair under professional. To see what they actually produce is very professional, but it's 
Oh, yeah. How, how late the, did we stay the, up the one time to watch that launch? Oh, that was just... I, I, I can remember it vividly because I was sat here watching it. It was very early for you. It, yeah. was, it, was, it was like breakfast time for me, but it was uh, very early for you. It wasn't like 1, 2 in the morning, something like that? But you were there watching it. You just set up your 3D printer just to get it going. Oh, <laughs> So you had something to do whilst you were waiting for it to launch. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> And we were kind of... Hey, got something on that one, too. Oh, cool. A little little bit of a good news story, kind of. TennoCon, which is the big Warframe conference, is a month away. So last year I went up there with two pistols that were designed by a guy over in Belgium. Well, not that he designed the pistols, but he made a 3D model of them, made the files available. Big hit. Lots of people were really... They were like, oh, wow, that is so cool, blah, 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 blah. And the one community manager was like, so what are you bringing next year? I was like, oh, okay, what am I bringing next year? And I'm bringing up a big honking quad barrel shotgun. This thing is like a meter long, and it weighs like a little less than three kilograms. It's a beast. But then I posted that online, and the guy who made the pistols, he was like, so what are you bringing up for melee? Or or like, if you're going to bring a pistol, if you're going to bring a primary, you should bring a melee, because that's what you do in the game. You choose a Mm -hmm. primary, you choose a secondary, and you choose a melee. And that's how you you go in your mission with that. I was just like... No, that's too much. I'm not going to worry about that. And, of course, an hour later, I'm looking through the melee weapons to decide what to make, you know, because this is me. (laughs) (laughs) I finally got that one set up. I I posted that one myself. The last one, the shotgun, I didn't. Somebody else posted it, and I just kind of lurked around in the threads to see what people were saying. And they were complimentary. This time, I posted it myself so that I could answer questions. So this is only the second thing like this that I have actually designed from scratch. And I had a guy from England contact me to ask me if I do commissions for other Warframe weapons. Wow. How cool is that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of a noob. I've got a 9-to-5 job, so I can't really put too much time. Thank you anyway, but I don't feel right taking commissions right now. And he actually responded with, oh, that's too bad. Wow. That was an ego boost I could have used. That was cool. <laughs> Now, you know, now that I know that there is an interest, and I had other people in the Reddit thread saying, oh, you know, can't wait to see the other stuff you come up with and things like that. People suggesting what the next weapon I design should be, that sort of thing. So I, I was talking with my wife about this, and I'm, I might have an excuse to get a bigger 3D printer now, you know. <clears throat> <laughs> Did you ever get yours set up? I haven't. <laughs> I've been so busy with I know. other things. But I do intend to, when the uh, the winter months, the autumn months come in, I, I intend to um, get things done on it. You're like me. You complain about having too much on your plate, but then you keep adding more to your plate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like me. My wife gets on my case for that so many times. Yeah, I'm, I'm constantly coming up with um, new ideas and plans yep. and this, that, and the other, and then other things get put on a back burner and yep. then... I take it no announcements on what you've been working on yet? Not as yet. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, you're just going to have to keep waiting. There are more meetings and whatnot um, within the next week or so, so yeah. (laughs) That's all fine and good. But yeah, so no, we we love Copenhagen suborbitals. Kind of have to agree that they haven't gotten to space yet, so don't know that they really qualify in this case. No, I mean, when you hear that um, the Chinese space agency have sent commercial satellites from floating platform, yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. 
But uh, if you look at the way that the, the, the Chinese Space Agency has moved on over the last few years, mm-hmm. I mean, you got, they conducted their first crewed mission in 2003, became the third country after Russia and America to be able to do this. They've put two space stations into orbit since then, and they plan to launch a Mars rover in the mid-2020s they don't have that many problems with the Chinese space program. But look what they have achieved since 2003. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew that they were going to be putting people into space, and it happened. And then two space stations, one of them they're, they're going to be apparently leasing out to the European Space Agency because it's not being used. Mm-hmm. That would be pretty cool. And now they want to start doing things on Mars. I can see the Chinese getting back to the moon before anybody else. I've got this feeling that that's what they're going to do. You mean manned missions? Yeah. Hmm. I don't know that I'll go that far yet. It's, it's always difficult because, well, Chinese space agency are not very open about uh, right. what they do. I mean, even the Russians are, are more open than, than the Chinese yeah. are. But it does remind me of the old Soviet space program. You know, one minute there was nothing, then they put Sputnik up there, then mm-hmm. there was all these manner of firsts that the Russians did. If their lunar program had, had worked as well as they wanted it to, history could have been a different thing. But it didn't, and that's when the United States took over in the running. Yep. So who knows what could be behind... <laughs> The with, doors with, in China. With the lovely little Saturn V, like the one right behind me. <laughs> <laughs> See, what's going to happen is you're going to end up getting your own Saturn V Lego set, and then I won't be able to boast about that anymore. <laughs> I've got to find somewhere to put it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I have room for my uh, lunar lander. I'll find room for it, though. I'll find it. <laughs> University of Southern California students have launched a rocket that reaches space, which is uh, believed to be the first ever student-designed and student-built rocket to reach past the boundary of space. If it is confirmed, then it actually completes a decade-long informal competition among various engineering schools worldwide to create the first university rocket to achieve spaceflight. So they called it the Traveler 4, and apparently it crossed what's called the Kármán line. That's the international boundary where we've all agreed that's where space begins. Yeah. Uh, that is 62 miles or 100 kilometers, and analysis apparently has confirmed the achievement with 90% certainty. So they launched it back in April from New Mexico's Spaceport America. Uh, it successfully flew at 7.30 a.m. local time reached a recorded altitude of 64.4 miles, or 103.6 kilometers, which obviously crosses the line, reached a top speed of uh, just short of 5,500 kilometers per hour, which would be about uh, 3,400 miles per hour for us Yankees. So there were more than 80 undergraduates who participated in this rocket design, plus the construction, plus the launch, that included receiving clearance from the FAA. Well, this was their fourth attempt to reach space, hence why it was called the Traveler 4. But uh, they did it. So definitely congratulations to the team at University of Southern California for doing that. That uh, I wish I could have been there. That would have been cool to watch. Yeah, definitely would. It's always good to see some of these uh, smaller outfits actually achieving things because mm-hmm. um, it gives you hope for uh, other people to, to get out there as well. 
You know, as long as they're not doing stuff like India and blowing up satellites and causing a whole bunch of space debris. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I heard your exhale on that one. <laughs> yeah, that was dumb. I don't know if you saw that photograph that's been doing the rounds from Japan's Hayabusa spacecraft when it swooped down to 30 feet above the surface of an asteroid so close that you could see the shadow of the spacecraft. Oh, nice. The the snap was taken in the middle of a manoeuvre to drop a target marker on the surface of the near-Earth asteroid Ryugu. The image is the latest stunner of a photograph to come back from the Hayabusa 2 mission, which previously landed two rovers on the asteroid in a world's first attempt. The Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA, reported that Hayabusa 2 was 30 feet or 9 metres above the rocky asteroid surface at the time. The shadow of the spacecraft is clearly visible, a JAXA spokesperson wrote on Twitter, and the small black point shown below the shadow of the spacecraft body is the shadow of the target marker, they added. (laughs) I'm looking at the photo now. Holy cow. That's insane. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> that is awesome. I'm mean, 30 feet from the surface. That's really close. Wow. So then, okay, so then that, that bright white object at the very lower right, is that the marker being dropped? Yeah. Oh, wow. That is cool. I love these little stories like this. These are ones that normally get missed. I mean, at the end of the day, this is history as well. Only in a small way, but it is still history. Capturing that image is is mind-blowing, really. 30 feet above an asteroid. Which is, I mean, both objects are moving at different speeds. And, you know, the asteroid is normally rotating as well. Mm -hmm. So it's just... Well, how it didn't take out the spacecraft is beyond me. That's what I'm wondering. Does it have any kind of... Did they simply already have the math for the proper orbit to get it that close? Or does it have some kind of collision detection? I would have thought it's possibly the latter. Wow. That is an amazing shot. Definitely one to go in the show notes. Yeah, you're right, because I missed that one too. That is an amazing shot. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, blown away by that. (laughs) To think that they're 30 feet over an asteroid. And I thought the... uh, Oh, shoot, the name of that, the, that comet. Oh, the, what, 67P? Yeah. Yeah, Rosetta. Rosetta, yeah. I thought that one produced some really cool photos, but that one is amazing. This is the one thing we do well on this show. We, we look at the stuff that, yes, you've got your mainstream things, mm-hmm. and we will go into one of those. We, we do need to talk about the white elephant in space. But these little stories, I love it when we find these and we shared it with the people because... Oh, There's a lot of people that probably wouldn't notice them. This one animation that I'm seeing, it looks like what it does is it actually drops down to the surface, deposits it, then launches back up. Wow. That's what it would imply. And then they've got another image where it looks like it actually did drop it down on the ground and then took off. Or at least got really close, dropped it, then took off. Honestly, at this point, I don't care how it works. That is a cool photo. <laughs> There's something that we've been looking forward to for a while. It looks like it happened, but there's a little bit of a twist to it. A couple of months ago, the world's largest airplane took off, you know, the the Strato launch. Uh, Well, it's called the world's largest airplane. There are actually airplanes that are longer, 
but I think they're going by wingspan on this one. But it's got a wingspan of 385 feet, which is 117 meters. It's basically the length of an American football field. Yeah. So it's actually longer than that, really. But it actually did fly. It finally did fly, flew up to 15,000 feet, roughly 4,500 meters, reached speeds of... America, can we just go metrics? We can stop with these dual... (laughs) (laughs) About 170 miles an hour, 274 kilometers per hour. So it actually did go. It, It went on its maiden flight. I know that we've been waiting for that one for a while now. However, there's a bit of a twist. This is in the rumor category, but apparently the only reason why that was flown was as a promise by... Paul Allen's sister. Obviously, Paul Allen died a few months back. So apparently that was a promise by his sister to get it to launch, and now it appears that Strato Launch is closing operations. Now that they finally got it up in the air, her promise to him is fulfilled. So they've been developing a portfolio, obviously, of of various launch vehicles to go with this to eventually launch humans into space, but uh, Paul Allen died back in October. So a representative, of course, declined to comment. However... Back in January, they said that they were scrapping the rocket building portion of the company, uh, but would continue to focus on on the plane itself. Then on April 1st, they only had 21 employees, as opposed to 77 in December, uh, and most of the remaining employees were for completing the plane's test flight, which, well, that's what just happened. And as apparently a, a decision to set an exit strategy was made late last year by Jody Allen, which is Paul Allen's sister. She's now in charge of the company. So she decided to let the aircraft fly to honor her brother's wishes. But now it appears that uh, most of the Stratolaunch employees have moved on to other space companies and such, so on and so forth. So it looks like Stratolaunch is, uh, if, it's, if it's not no more now, that sounded awkward, but you know what I mean, then it will be shortly, which... You know, what can you do? No, I've I got a theory on this. Oh? I get the feeling that someone like uh, Northrop Grumman might buy it out. You think? The reason why is because they've got their Pegasus rocket that flies underneath planes. Hmm. It gets launched from underneath planes, and they, at the moment, they're relying on NASA. Right. So if they had their own way of launching, it might be better for the company. Yeah, rather than develop their own from scratch. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. So that that's my theory. Now, if it comes true, I I, I don't know what I'd do here, but it's, um, it's not the first time we've actually mentioned something in the past and then it only took something like three years, but something did actually come through. But uh, I've been doing some thinking on that and I thought, hmm, that's a possibility. Yeah, because yeah, okay, here it is. Pegasus is carried aloft by our Stargazer L-1011 aircraft to approximately 40,000 feet over the open ocean, where it is released in free falls before igniting its first stage rocket motor. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they already do have an aircraft that does that, but maybe the Stratocaster is a more, a more viable option for them. I don't know. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, there's been talk in the past, every now and then we see the uh, a different test in things happening with Sierra Nevada's Dream Chaser. There is an option for that to be launched in the same way, underneath a plane, drop it, whoosh, away you go. They've been talking about that for a long time, and they were talking with uh, Paul Allen about that as well. So, Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a possibility. I mean, and Dream Chaser just... 
uh, I think it was last month, they got another clearance from NASA, another step to actually be part of NASA's ability of sending up cargo and so forth. They passed another milestone on that one last month, I believe. So they're definitely on their way. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, this is one that we've been following for a long time. Oh, yeah. Dream Chaser. Maybe. We were devastated when we thought that it wasn't actually going to fly at all. So. That's an interesting theory. Who knows? I can only speculate as to what she was thinking regarding the the whole project. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, make it to to a point where she, she might be trying to sell it off to another company. Yeah. Yeah, you might have something there. Well, well, since we've lasted a, a show together, I mean, there's been a lot being happening with the moon. Oh, boy. It's a band-aid that needs to be uh, pulled off quickly. <laughs> On May the 14th, President Trump announced that NASA was going to amend the, uh, a budget request from NASA for the moon program which would include an additional 1.6 billion dollars that is <laughs> since then vice president pence challenged nasa to land the next man and the first woman on the moon by 2024 a full four years earlier than initially planned and everyone was saying nobody's even got anything on a drawing board yet about trying to get a lander on the moon and then Blue Origin announced their Blue Moon vehicle, and that started everybody else moving. It just takes one little thing for everyone to start doing something. So at that time, President Trump tweeted, as always, uh, under my administration, we are restoring NASA to greatness and we are going back to the moon and then Mars. I am updating my budget request to include an additional $1.6 billion so that we can return to space in a big way. It was starting to look very, very promising at that point. I gather you know the story behind why they call it Artemis. Mm -hmm. Well, Artemis is the goddess of space, and she's also, if I remember rightly, Apollo's twin sister. So that's why it goes from Apollo to Artemis. It makes perfect sense. This is all in Greek mythology. Then they were talking about the different commercial companies that were going to be taking part in this whole enterprise. We're not talking about crude stuff here. We're talking about automated rovers and this, that and the other uh, that needs to be done before we start putting boots back on the moon. And then, uh, I don't know how to approach this, Uh, Donald Trump said that the space agency should be looking bigger or thinking bigger. They should be focused on the much bigger things we are doing, including Mars, which the moon is a part. I know what he was saying, but... Oh, God. (sighs) Trump's tweet was widely mocked for claiming that the moon is part of Mars as he referred to the mission that proposes to use the rocky surface as a central outpost. Now, Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins had speculated before the tweet that Trump might not actually know that Mars is a planet. Donald Trump swatted back in a tweet that he intended to put pressure on NASA to refocus its space program on going to Mars than rather its gateway program. You can't 
get to Mars without the Gateway Program. Yeah, it, we need to have a stopping point. I mean, okay, he got, yes, he got mocked for the Mars of which the moon is a part, as though the moon is a part of Mars. I get that. I think that was just bad wording. Yeah, the moon is part of the Mars mission. Yes, that, what he, but I mean, he, that tweet even started with, for all the money we are spending, NASA should not be talking about going to the moon. But then the second sentence says that we should be talking about going to Mars, of which the moon is a part, which obviously we understand beyond the the obvious joke. He means going to the moon as part of the Mars mission, but then the two sentences contradict each other. We should not be talking (laughs) about going to the moon. We should be talking about going to Mars, of which the moon is a part. So then we're talking about going to the moon. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if this is putting a stumbling block for what has already been set up. The day afterward, uh, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, I apologize if I'm not, he actually addressed that. As you know, the president has given our agency the bold charge to land the next man and the first woman on the lunar south pole by 2024. And now President Trump has extended his vote of confidence in our work with an amended budget request for fiscal year 2020. It includes $1.6 billion in additional funding. This investment is a down payment on NASA's efforts and will allow us to move forward with design, development, and exploration. Among other things, It will allow us to accelerate our development of the Space Launch System and Orion. It will support the development of a human lunar landing system, and it will support precursor capabilities on the lunar surface, including increased robotic exploration of the moon's polar regions. While there are many steps ahead in the budget and appropriations process, all of us at NASA should be very proud and excited by this unique opportunity. Our efforts will include new work at NASA centers to provide the key technologies and scientific payloads needed for the gateway and lunar surface, adding to efforts that are already underway all across our country. Additionally, we envision strong commercial partnerships that will help increase innovation and reduce costs to the American taxpayer. I challenge you, the NASA family, to share with your family and friends how for 60 years, investment in our agency has improved the human condition through science, exploration, and innovation. Exploring the moon is the next step in our agency's story, and it will be to the benefit of all of us. We are at a moment of opportunity, together. Thank you for your dedication to our mission and pressing in on the hard work that is moving us forward to the moon and on to Mars. We are going. If the top guy at NASA is saying, no, no, that nothing's changing, I would at least like to give him some benefit of the doubt there. So like I said, you can, if you read between the lines, you can see what Trump was saying. He just did not say it well. I mean, if you l- listen to any of these um, promo videos for NASA, it talks about the moon, Mars, and beyond. So yeah. it's, it's all part and parcel, yeah. really. It's, They've been talking um, for years about the moon being a jumping spot. Uh-huh. We go to the moon first, then we go to Mars. But, oh, yeah. I mean, well, we were talking about that years ago when it was a case of, right, we're going to Mars, forget about the moon. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we were like, no, you need to go, <laughs> you need yeah. to, go to the moon, then 
use that as a, a stepping stone, blah, blah, blah. And then it started to come about that that's what they were going to do. And it was almost like, well, yeah, well, they should have listened to us that's before. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. For They need to listen to this show more often. Uh, I don't want to get in the habit of defending President Trump, but in this case, I get what he was saying. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just badly written, badly worded. But like I said, if you read between the lines, you can see yeah. what he was trying to say. This is what has been happening over the last few months. Things did happen very rapidly, mm-hmm. didn't they? It went from nothing to, hang on, there's a lot of things going on here. Yeah. I don't mind the things going on, but, I mean, they're talking about 2024. Mm-hmm. That ain't happening. I can't see it. There's no way. I mean, SLS hasn't even launched. They haven't even tried a test flight of it yet. They're now bringing in other companies now to try and speed things up. Sounds like they're outsourcing a bit more than they were in in the past. But as we know, with outsourcing from recent years, it's caused a few problems. I mean, you look at the uh, problems that SpaceX had where they outsourced some stuff and they had the explosion. Yeah. Correlation does not equal causation. Let's be careful here. <laughs> mm. There's a lot of contracting and subcontracting going on out there. Oh, there always has been with, with the space industry. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, if you if you look at how many hundreds of companies that were involved with the original Saturn V. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're talking tens and of thousands of people that mm-hmm. were involved from different organizations. So it's a huge, huge business that um, spirals out. I mean, it's, it's not just... You know, the big operators, you've got little companies that supply things like nuts and bolts mm-hmm. and screws and whatever. It's a big, big business. We still don't have a, any kind of estimate on the launch for the SLS, do we? No. I don't think so. I still personally think that that thing isn't going to fly. Yeah. The, the Orion will end up being on whatever launch vehicle you want it to go on. Mm-hmm. SLS, however, hmm. I mean, even when that was Ares, I wasn't so keen on it. So, because it is basically Ares, it's just a modification of it. Yeah. And they're still using SRBs. Shuttle technology. As we've said in the past, having things on the side of rockets is sometimes problematic. Yeah. I, I, I hope for the best. It'd be great if it does work. But wow. Well, talking about this whole thing about going to Mars turns out that it might not be a great idea simply because of physiology we as humans might not be ready for that kind of long-term thing a big study was done between twin brothers scott kelly and mark kelly obviously scott kelly was up at the iss for almost a year it was the longest space flight by an american they basically used him and his twin brother mark to conduct a bunch of tests mark stayed on the ground so considering their you know their physiologies are so similar they figured this would be a good way to test whether humans really are ready for uh, any kind of long-term space flight the results aren't good the analysis for this it's called get ready the nasa twins study a multi-dimensional analysis of a year-long human space flight yes but it integrates the work of 10 different groups at various universities around the country and 82 separate authors based on the various data that was collected from Scott while he was up on the ISS, compared that with his brother Mark. Yeah, things do not look all that good 
for humanity being unless there's some kind of technology to compensate for this but low gravity environments or no gravity environments does some really crazy things to the human body so first they got baseline blood saliva urine they took ultrasound images uh, of from various parts of the body and then they took regular samples while he was up at the space station and the results are a bit disturbing Uh, 40% of the astronauts who lived on the ISS suffered some sort of eye damage, which included things called optic disc edema, globe flattening, the blood fluid layer between the retina and the, the sclera, the clear part of the eye. There were issues there. There were intracranial pressure possibilities for that. They don't know for sure. Now, in most cases, you know, they, they were cured in that regard within about six months after they got back. But there were other things that happened that have not been corrected. They found out that the heart seems to shrink. And they found that with a lot of astronauts who have gone up to the ISS, that those shrinkages appear to be permanent. That could be an issue. Uh, there's no gravity to pull blood down to the lower limbs. That can cause issues. So the article itself is really long, and it goes into a lot of details that, well, some of the the material they're talking about go a little bit over my head. That's okay. The article wasn't necessarily written for me. But Scott's samples were returned to Earth aboard Soyuz capsules, so they would separate the blood. Oh, they also found that the immune system gets compromised when you're up in space. That's a bad thing. More than 10,000 genes get activated by space flight. So right now, humans have about 58,000 genes to the, to the whole genome. And so you're seeing like one-sixth of the genes suddenly being activated because of the stress of launch and being up there and coming back. And they found that there, there are things called telomeres, which are the caps at the end of the chromosomes that kind of keep the, the DNA integrity in, te- in check. Well, apparently those things were affected the bacteria in his gut were affected. The dimensions of his carotid arteries, and we talked about the eyes, those were affected. Many of his immune-related cellular pathways were disrupted, including the adaptive immune system. You know, that's what, as soon as we get something new into our body, it's the adaptive immune system that says, oh, wait, what is this? I need to learn from this and learn to fight it. That actually became compromised in his time up at the space station. This is obviously a bad thing, because that also includes natural cells that protect the body from things like cancers and viruses. So just 90 days into his flight, apparently those cells were reduced by up to 50%. They also found out that his cognitive function was also hit. They phrase it here that he got dumber on the ISS. I don't really think that's the appropriate term, but his uh, ability to make decisions quickly was affected. Apparently, most of this stuff returned to normal, like I said, before, after about six months. Most, not all of them. Uh, Apparently, the decline in his uh, speed and accuracy and so forth persisted afterwards. It wasn't one of those things where he suddenly, just after a little bit, got got his control and his, his mental capabilities back. The loss of that extended for a bit longer than they would have expected it to. The one that they're really concerned about is what I mentioned before, those telomeres. They said that they were weirdly lengthened. They said it could have been because of exercise or what he ate. So that means that there's a possibility that it could be remedied on long space flights if they can identify what caused it. But within 48 hours of returning to Earth, those shortened in reaction to the stresses of landing... And six months after the mission, he had fewer of them overall 
and increased number of what they call critically short telomeres. Now, I'm not a physiologist. I don't know the real implications of that. But considering that those things are meant to keep your DNA integrity good, I can only assume that this is a bad thing. Well, it does say that the loss might increase astronauts' risk of developing cancer and other diseases at an old age. So they're, they're currently labeling it as an unknown risk, and it's reducing your ability to fight off cancers. Plus, add on to that, the inability to fight off cancers as well, and you're going to be out in space where radiation is going to be far more significant, you know, unless you have really good shielding. So you're losing your ability to fight off cancers. Meanwhile, you're getting hit by potentially more cancer-causing radiation. Yeah, and this is just a, a part of this whole report. I mean, I printed it off in small type, and it still came out to eight pages. Wow. Yeah, and they go into a whole bunch of other things, you know, because they talk about how, obviously, we get protected by the atmosphere and the magnetic fields from Earth when it comes to radiation and so forth. You're not going to have that on Mars. You're certainly not going to have that on the trip out to Mars. Clearly, there are some issues going on here. And another thing that uh, astronauts, this is a commonly reported thing, is that they'll close their eyes to go to sleep. But because of cosmic rays hitting their eyes, even when they're their eyelids are closed, they'll see flashes of light. Not that that's a problem, but it's indicative that they're no longer protected like they would be on Earth. And our immune systems are used to what we have on Earth. I don't want to say it was scary to read this, but obviously it acknowledges that, you know what? Physiologically, we might not be ready to leave the Earth's atmosphere as much as we would like to be. At this point, they say that this study should be considered a hypothesis generator. They simply don't have enough data. Uh, Because this is a single study between two people. We just don't know what years of exposure to that kind of radiation and in a low-gravity environment could have. So as it says, for right now, Scott says that something I feel directly from the flight, I can't really say that much. I have those changes to my vision. I have the radiation that affected my DNA. I don't feel any of that, but I know it's there. I don't really worry about it. I certainly will feel things in 20 years, no doubt. Yeah, you know, reading all of that, it's nice that we've got Star Trek and so forth saying, yeah, you know, we can go on these long space missions and so forth, and we've got this current dream of going to Mars. But simply from a physiological perspective, we might not be as ready as we think we are. Yeah, it's, it's really an interesting read, as long as you can understand the science behind it. And it actually did a good job of trying to dumb things down for, you know, our level. <laughs> <laughs> but really, the, the end result is that we probably shouldn't be up there for extended periods of time at this point. Yeah, that's uh, food for thought, as they say. Yeah, I get it. I get the desire to go up there. Um, and we've proven that. You know, humans can live in space for at least a limited amount of time, but because we know that Mars at this point is a one-way trip. But are we condemning those people to a fate possibly even worse than a one-way trip? Yeah, and what about, you know, any descendants? I'm not trying to be a doom and gloom guy. I'm simply looking at the, the you know, that study and the possibilities. Is it that maybe uh, we're not destined to go beyond the atmosphere, at least not anytime soon, for, for you know, for an extended length of time? Something to think about. Obviously, more studies need to be done, clearly. Don't know how they're going to really be able to do that. How many twins do we have on this planet where one is studying to be an astronaut, the other one's going to stay on the ground? You know, if they can find enough commonality just from 
long-term astronauts in general, you know, then it's some things that need to be thought about. Yeah, definitely. So that takes us to the end of another pack show. One thing I would like to say to people out there, if you listen to the TGP Nominal Extra episode at the beginning of June, I mentioned on there that if you wanted to take part in our object of the month, if you're a budding astronomer or budding astrophotographer, get in touch with us. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. If you've got uh, an object in the sky, a celestial body or whatever, that you find totally fascinating when you're up there looking up at the skies, um, that you want to just talk about just for a couple of minutes uh, why you think this object is so fascinating, and uh, yeah, you might become our Object of the Month contributor. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So, John. Yo. That <laughs> <laughs> just. Anyway. <laughs> just as you said that, I've got Egon Spengler in my head. <laughs> When he's trying to be that uh, that workman guy, you know, uh, <laughs> got the hard hat on, trying to pretend to be digging a hole in the ground. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's coming out on Blu-ray too, recently remastered. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Ultra HD. I love Ghostbusters. John, yeah. once again, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for putting up with me, as usual. <laughs> So what are you talking about next time? Is it uh, just about time for the PAX East episode? I think it could well be. I think it is. So that's something for you guys to look out for, because last time John went out and about at PAX East, we got quite a good response from that, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're the one who gets most of the feedback. You don't tell me squat. <laughs> so if anything interesting comes through, I, I forward it on. <laughs> yeah, so that'll be interesting. So yeah. we've got a, a couple of other bits and pieces that uh, are coming up in the next few months as well. Yeah, so as I always like to say at the end of each show, thanks to everyone out there for listening. Uh, take care one and all, and we'll speak to you all again real soon. Doodles, Doc. <laughs> you know you stinker. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output. Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.
So what what are we talking? Let me try that again. Uh, 